Have you ever had a child give you a drawing or perhaps a homemade gift of some sort? If you're looking for artistic mastery, uh, you know this isn't it. They present you with a mostly scribbled picture of two stick figures, and one of them is apparently you. And although this drawing isn't a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination whatsoever, you still praise them for their thoughtfulness. And you might even hang it on the fridge for several years to come. Why do we do this when this gift really has no real material value or art execution? Why don't we say to this child, sorry, actually, I wanted the latest smartphone, not this pathetic thing of a drawing? We don't do that. It's because we value the gift not based on artistry or expense, but on the thought and intention of the child as they give to you what they could from their heart. They want to please you. In a similar way, part of what we learn in today's account is that God views our feeble efforts to love him much like a parent does with their child. He desires that we express our love for him in sincerity and in truth, no matter how much or how little we have. So this brings us back to Mark chapter 12 here this morning, and please turn there in your copy of the scriptures as I read our passage, Mark 12, 35 through 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David. David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. And many people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, for they all gave out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. As we come back to Mark 12 here this morning, we remember that Jesus has just answered a bunch of very very difficult questions from the religious elite. These guys have come out to try to trap Jesus and do him in. But in each of their attempts from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they completely fail. Jesus sweeps the floor with them. And in humiliation, the religious elite concede defeat. They don't dare ask him any more questions because they realize the superior wisdom that he possesses. That's where we left off last week. But Jesus isn't done with this group yet. 
He's not done with them. He's been answering all sorts of questions from them, but now it's his turn. It's his turn to finally ask them a question. And the question he has is really directed towards the scribes at large. This brings us to verse 35. And in case we forgot, Mark reminds us Jesus is teaching in the temple. And while he's doing this, he finally poses a question to all the people around him. It's his turn. He asks, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Now, as we just read this, I wonder how many of you were tracking with Jesus's question here. Do do you know what he's asking? Did you grasp all of that? I'm not even sure the crowd here fully understands what Jesus is getting at here. And so we need to look at this question even more closely because my guess is we're not necessarily tracking with all that Jesus is saying here immediately. So we want to break down this question that Jesus is asking everybody. First, we recognize here that Jesus is targeting the scribes or those who are specialized in the law. And he's asking them a question about the Messiah being the son of David. They believed that the Messiah, of which Jesus claimed to be, would be the son of David, and for good reason. God promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would raise up one of his offspring to rule forever and ever. And because of this, they believed the Messiah then to be the son of David. God's made this covenant with David, The Messiah must then come from David's line. This is what's promised by God. But as we look at this question, it almost seems, if we're looking at it, like Jesus is almost questioning this premise. For he begins his question by saying, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? So is is Jesus challenging this premise? Is he saying that he's not the son of David? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Because even up to this point in Mark, what have we seen? We've seen Jesus receiving praise as the son of David. And we've seen this more than once. We remember that blind Bartimaeus from just a couple chapters ago calls Jesus the son of David. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him for it. In fact, he stops and he goes and he heals this man. And then even as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, what are the people singing? They're singing praises to Jesus as the one who brings the coming kingdom of David. They're calling him the son of David, and Jesus doesn't deny it at all. So if Jesus isn't denying this, what is he saying here? Why is Jesus challenging them to reconsider his identity as the son of David. Isn't this a good thing? Well, we find our clue in the text that Jesus quotes. Psalm 110, verse 1, which, by the way, is the most quoted text in the New Testament, occurring 33 times. 
It's a very important passage. It's also a text that the scribes and the people held to be about the Messiah. So Jesus quotes this text saying, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit. In other words, David says, inspired by God. Everything he says here is inspired by God. The Lord declared to my Lord. And so Jesus draws attention to the fact that David says, the Lord declared to my Lord. Now, our English texts don't really pick up the difference here between the two lords, but if you turn over to what Jesus is quoting, Psalm 110, verse 1, if you look there in your Bibles, you'll notice the difference. The first lord is completely capitalized. You'll notice that as you look at it. And it's capitalized in our English text, signifying the divine name of God, Yahweh. But the second Lord, you'll notice, is not capitalized. It's not referring to Yahweh. But it's representing somebody that is David's Lord, or Adonai. Normally, when we see Yahweh and Adonai, Lord and Lord, it's normally a reference to God himself. Something to the effect of, God himself says. But that's not the case here when we look at this text. We find Yahweh saying something to David's Lord, David's Adonai. And we kind of have to wonder, who is Yahweh speaking to here? I mean, David is the king over all the land. So who could possibly be greater than David? Who could possibly be David's Lord in the text? And the common answer was that David's Lord was the Messiah. This was the son of David that God promised to raise up. But this poses a problem. This is where the problem is. And this is the problem that Jesus is getting at if we're tracking with him. If the Messiah is greater than David, even David's Lord, how in the world can he be David's son? Now, we probably don't have a a problem with this thought of the son being greater than his father, but for Jewish thought, this is a problem. Because in Jewish categories of thought, the son was always subordinate to the father. He was never greater than his father. If you're the son of a certain king, you're not better than him. You're a lesser version of him. And so by this reasoning, as marvelous as the Messiah would be, he would still be David's son. And therefore, he would not be greater than David. But this is exactly what Jesus is challenging here in his question. He's challenging the scribes and the crowd's perception of the Messiah. In reality, the promised Messiah, the son of David, would actually be greater than David himself. This is what he's getting at. The Messiah would actually be David's sovereign and even his Lord, the greatest king of all of Israel, and yet the Messiah is going to be better than him. And more than this, even as we read this text and, and proclaimed it in our responsive reading, Jesus, the Messiah, would be seated at the right hand of God himself. He would be given the highest position of authority over all things. 
And so Jesus is drawing our attention to the superiority of the Messiah over even David. And this is exactly what the scribes missed. This is what the people missed. Now, they all thought that the Messiah would be a king, a good king, maybe even a great king. But Jesus pushes back on this. It's, it's not enough. It's not enough just to think that Jesus is just a good king. No, he's far better than that. He's far greater than David. He's not just going to be a lesser David. No, he's going to be far superior beyond anything we could ever imagine or think. He's going to be seated at the right hand of God. And so Jesus, in his question, is challenging the crowd, challenging the scribes to reconsider who the Messiah to be. And for even us here this morning, challenging us to consider once more, who do we believe Jesus to be? So who do you believe Jesus to be this morning? And I I don't know the entirety of what you believe or think about Jesus, but as we come to here, we must know this, that Jesus isn't just a moral man or a good teacher. Jesus is far greater than our culture's common perception of him. And he's far more than just the son of David. In Mark's word, Jesus is the son of God. And because of this, he is worth following with our whole life, our whole being. For he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our adoration. For he is the sovereign one who is seated at the right hand of God with power over all things. So know this morning that Jesus doesn't just suggest that you follow him, that you trust him, that you obey him, but as the king over the entirety of the universe, he demands that you do this, for he is the one who rules over all things. So after calling the scribes, calling the people to really grasp who he is and the implications he now goes after the scribes who have largely missed it altogether. Verse 38. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in log robes and who want to greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. While there were exceptions to the rules, like the scribe that we talked about last week, Jesus condemns the scribes at large here. And he tells us to watch out, to be careful, especially of these scribes who want to be made much of. And we're told how they would do this. First, with long robes. The scribes would often wear long white garments. And really, what this would do is it would set them apart from ordinary, normal people. It made them stand out as teachers of the law, and it would draw the unbound respect and awe from the people who saw them in public. Second, they also loved the greetings they would receive. In this culture, people were to greet those more knowledgeable in the Torah. So whenever you saw a scribe clothed in white, they were passing by you, you were to stand up and you were to greet the scribe with either the title of rabbi, father, and even master. And they loved it. The scribes also loved the seats of honor that they would have. 
And in the synagogue, where the scriptures were taught and read, the leading teachers of the law occupied the best seats in the synagogues. And these seats would be in the very front where they would face the congregation. It's kind of like having chairs up here, looking this, they would sit at the front. And they loved being seen by all people as they would give them more honor and recognition. And then fourth, closely connected to this, they loved the important banquets that they were a part of. Now, banquets were a large part of the society. It was important. And in these banquets, it was customary to invite distinguished scribes. Here, the scribes would be seated in the highest seats of honor for all to see, and oftentimes even above the parents of the host. So Jesus says, watch out for these scribes. Watch out for those who love and treasure public honor. Beware of those who love to be made much of by people. These scribes, they study the scriptures, and they know it inside and out, but they do it for the praise and approval of man, not God. And so Jesus exposes their hearts. He exposes what they're truly after. Not God, but the praise of men. Now, this is really hard for us to grasp how, how hard this would have hit the crowds. The scribes were the most well-respected. They would have looked up to them. They were the models of holiness. And yet Jesus is showing us their hypocritical nature and hearts. In reality, to the core of their being, they were evil and wicked. And Jesus goes on to even explain that in verse 40. For they devour widows' houses, and they say long prayers just for show. And because of this, they're going to receive even harsher judgments. Now, what devouring widows' houses means isn't entirely clear, and not all commentators are agreed on exactly what they were doing here. But one possibility is that they intentionally mismanaged the widow's property and for their own advantage. Or another possibility is that they took these widow's houses as pledges for unpayable debt. But whatever it was in this devouring of their houses, what is clear is that they are taking advantage of the widows, of the poorest of the poor, by using their influence to leverage them into giving them resources and money until they had nothing left. And what Jesus tells us is that what they're doing is evil. It's awful. And being a scribe of all people, they should have known this. Even as we go to the Old Testament, as we go to Exodus 22, 22 through 24, the Israelites were forbidden from afflicting the widow. If they did, there was even the promise from God that he would strike them dead. He would kill them. He would execute justice for the widow. And so those who knew the Torah best should have known that to do this was a horrible offense to God. But it gets even worse. While they were taking advantage of these widows, they were at the same time saying long prayers just for show. They continue on as if the evil that they're committing doesn't even matter. They give the illusion of pious devotion to God while sinning in awful ways. 
They were acting as wolves in sheep's clothing. And because of this, Jesus declares his judgment on them. They will be judged severely by God. In a large way, as we step back here for a moment and look at the text, especially as we look at the scribes and we see all that they have, all the honor, all the praise, all the influence, what we really see is what the disciples of Jesus have been longing for throughout the entirety of Mark. As we've gone through Mark, we see Jesus' disciples long for this recognition, long for this power, long for this influence and respect. And we see this even as they argue about who is the greatest among them. And even as they, James and John ask for the same kind of power and influence that these scribes have just a couple chapters back. The scribes really have, in a sense, everything that Jesus' disciples ever wanted. But Jesus sends a clear message here in his condemnation of them in the strongest terms. Their desires have corrupted them entirely. And his disciples are not to be like these scribes in the least bit at all. So Jesus looks for one last example to set in contrast to these evil and wicked scribes. And as it would happen, it would be a poor widow that Jesus decides to point out. But before we get there, Mark sets the scene. Jesus and his disciples now move to where the free will offerings would have been in the temple. These offerings were in addition to their normal sacrifice, and it would have been beyond the minimum requirement. And here we find Jewish people coming to drop money in to any one of the 13 trumpet-shaped chests. Now, these chests were designed in this way to amplify the noise of the coins being dropped into it. It's meant to draw attention to anybody donating to God. So Jesus and his disciples sit across from these chests, and they watch many, many rich people place large sums of money into these boxes. Then enters the widow that we just mentioned. And with the placement here, after Jesus has just condemned the scribes for devouring widows' homes, we are likely meant to wonder, is this one such widow that has just been taken advantage of? Is she the most recent victim of the scribes? And as she approaches the boxes, she finally places two tiny coins worth little to nothing into these boxes. In fact, the coins she put in were the smallest and the least valuable coins in circulation in Palestine, worth only about six minutes, only six minutes of an average daily wage. This was next to nothing at all. But upon her offering, upon her offering, Jesus summons his disciples. He draws them together, and he, he says, look at this widow. I want you to look at her. And he calls them because he wants them to observe something about her that he doesn't want us to miss. And he tells us, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had to live on. Unlike the other people who gave out of the extra abundance, this widow 
gave everything that she had to even live on. And Jesus points her out. The question then is why? Why does Jesus point out this widow to his disciples? I think in one sense, he does this to bring condemnation on the scribes and the religious system at large. I do. Here stands one widow of whom Jesus spoke, one who has been robbed of everything and reduced to nothing by the ruthless scribes. So in pointing out this widow and the true state of their condition at large, there is a reality of coming judgment on God and Israel's leader. He will not let them go unpunished for it. This whole thing is coming down to ashes, and this widow symbolizes that. But I think Jesus points out for the, wid the widow for another reason, and I really believe he wants them to contrast the false piety of the scribes with the true piety of the widow. He wants us and his disciples to see what truly matters. Remember that the disciples are captured by the idea of worldly greatness, power, and influence that the scribes have. And here Jesus says, no, look at this widow instead. Here's what true greatness looks like. So Jesus helps them look at this widow who stands as an example for the kind of people that his disciples are to be in contrast to the scribes at large. In contrast to the scribes who have failed to render to God what is God's and have failed to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, here we find this poor widow seeking to render back to God what is God's. She's striving to the best of her ability to love him with everything that she has, no matter how little it is. And it's in this picture of this poor widow that is worth commending and praising. She's striving to live for God with the little that she has. And Jesus concludes, she's given more than all the others because she's literally given it all. The widow stands as a picture for what the disciples of Christ are to strive for in their following of Jesus. And it simultaneously stands as a symbol of the coming judgment on the temple and the scribes at large. So as we come to a close this morning, what are we to take away from this account? First, I think we learn that we can care far too much, far too much about things that don't matter to God. In the case of the scribes, what they cared about more than anything was the respect honor, and praise of men, something that the disciples wanted too. This is what drove the scribes and motivated their lives because this was at the center of their hearts and they devoured even the most vulnerable to get them ahead in self-promotion. And the same can be even true of us here this morning. We, like the scribes, can live and make our lives all about our own status, our own education, our own position, or how important people think that we are. And when self-promotion and self-advancement are at the center of our hearts, it can lead us to neglect God's greatest commandments. For what God truly cares about is that we love him. We love him with all of our being, and then to love 
our neighbor as ourselves. So if we find that we've been centering our lives on things that don't truly matter, Jesus calls us to repent of it, to turn from it back to him, for there is no room for self-promotion in God's kingdom. Instead, Jesus tells us plainly, if anyone would come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. So let us remember together that those who live to be first here on this earth will be last there. Second, we learn that what God really cares about is the heart of the giver. God does not judge by the amount we give, but by our heart and motive in our giving. He desires that we give to him freely out of hearts that truly love God for God, for who he is, not to get something from him. So in our giving, we must be careful not to mistake our giving more to God to mean that we necessarily love him more. If we've been given much, praise God and thank him because it all belongs to him. But for those of us who would consider ourselves to have little, let us at the same time not make the mistake of thinking that because I have little to offer, I just won't give it at all. As we've learned from the poor widow, in Jesus' estimate, she gave far more than any of the rich people in the temple that day because what truly mattered was her heart in the giving. And much like a child's drawing that is done for you to please you, we appreciate it not because it has true artistic value or material worth, but because of a heart of love of the child for you. And God, in a similar way, sees our own feeble efforts to please him, and he knows our heart, no matter how much or how little we have. So let this encourage you, no matter what you have, to serve God with your resources, with your talents, with your abilities, with the possessions that he's given you. Because Jesus, as we've seen, is worthy above all. He's worthy of everything. So let us render unto God our lives as the appropriate calling us a church. And let's do this with his grace alone.